0: Hi, I'm Frances LaCuesta, and you're listening to Big Impact Women. This podcast explores what it's like to live life in purpose, to discover our unique gifts and be a contribution to the world. Each episode features conversations with courageous women thought leaders, spiritual teachers, authors, artists, and social entrepreneurs on making an impact with their work, navigating through the challenges and struggles they face in their lives and the lessons they learn from these experiences.
1: I think the message is the exact same. We all want to just belong. We want to be fulfilled. We want to find joy as we are and for who we are. So connection and love, starting with love of self and acceptance of self. And when we can love and accept ourselves, then we can take the mask off and let other people see exactly who we are.
0: In today's episode... I am speaking with Dr. Marsha Natai Bakisun. She is a storyteller and educator who believes that we each have a powerful purpose that should guide our lives. As one of her children is brain injured and bedridden, Marsha and her family have traversed significant challenges. Her book, Lighting the Path, focuses on these issues and on sharing special needs experiences to boost inclusion and reduce isolation. Of special needs families. As a tenured lecturer at the University of the West Indies, Marsha is most drawn to the fields of health, safety and wellness, business and personal strategy, and teaching and learning. She is a certified parent skills master trainer and enjoys working with her husband to adapt interventions for their daughter and helping other parents do the same for their children. Here is my conversation with Dr. Marsha Natai Bakisun. Marcia, you work with special needs parents, thrive and cope with adversity. And I'm really interested to know the story behind how you came to do that. You told this beautifully in your book, Lighting the Path, but I'd love to hear it from you directly. So can you tell us about that?
1: Um, As with, I think, many, many women, our life is what inspires us to lean into the service that we give. Um, And in my case, nine years ago, my daughter, she was eight months old and she became brain injured due to a mistake when she was recovering after surgery. And um, that injury led to her becoming severely brain injured and bedridden for life. And so what we were told is that she would be in a vegetative state. And that we really should not have much hope for her. In fact, um, one doctor said, you know, withdraw food and just let her go. And I remember others saying, listen, your life will never be the same. Your daughter really isn't going to, to come up to much. So my advice is if you, you know, keep her, then put her in a home and move on. Um, and the, those. Questions that come up when your child comes comes back to you because she was from a flatline state, mm-hmm. and um, we were praying for her to come back. And when you pray for your child to come back, you never imagine that she won't come back the exact same as she was. Um, and what she came back as was such a different child, you know. And 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 therefore, we didn't bury our child, but we buried our dreams. Mm. The dreams of the life that was to come. You sort of had to sail that down the river and build something new. Um, And that new thing really depended on us continuing to have hope. And I think it is, it depended on us being stubborn. Saying, you know what, I don't care about your statistics. I don't care about what you've seen or what your message is, which is statistically there's no hope, give up, move on. Because that's not true. My child isn't a statistic. My child is everything in my life and in my family's life. And we felt that Emma was fighting so hard that it was our duty to fight as hard as she was fighting. Because when a parent's hope dies, the hope of the child has to die. And so I'm glad that we didn't give up, but it wasn't a logical decision for us. It wasn't that we thought it through and said, well, pros and cons, and here's why we should do it. The bottom fell out of our world. We didn't know what to do. And when that happens, you lean on intuition. And in my case, intuition came, I think when I prayed, and, and you get filled up with knowledge of a di- direction. And you, you don't really ask for how, you just ask, what? Mm-hmm. What should I do? And so every minute it was about, I had a five year old son at Emma's bedside while she was with all those tubes in and while she was seizing and while all the other things were happening. Um, and so for me, it was a pretense. It was a pretense that mommy was still happy. Mm -hmm. that things were still semi-normal because I couldn't break it to my five-year-old that all hope was gone. And so I would sing these songs and laugh and dance around Emmy's bed and take him for a walk down to, it was Dunkin' Donuts, I think, in that hospital and get him a hot chocolate and a donut and pretend that for that five minutes, everything was okay. And I think that kept us sane and kept us going in the short term. Until we became used to how life was going to be.
0: Um, I can just imagine what you and your family had to go through during that time. So just bringing you a little bit back on that, I'm curious about, you know, what was the initial reaction and what feelings were present at that moment?
1: Now, when I tell people this, some people say, so why didn't you like sue them? Uh, Didn't you get angry? Don't you blame somebody? And I'm looking back and I'm thinking, I do not know how, but at the time we knew very clearly who had made the mistake. We knew what the mistake was. So if we needed to point a finger and get angry, certainly it was a clear, clear decision. But I think when your child is holding onto life by a thread, The energy has to go into making that child whole and stronger. And so we did have that one logical discussion, Sean and I, Sean is my husband. We actually said, so what should we do? Financially, this is a lifetime of care. It's going to be really tough. She's going to have multiple disabilities and all sorts of needs. And yes, a lawsuit is going to help with that. But at the same time, We only have one set of energy and we only have time now. Should we take our time and invest it into going the route of a lawsuit? Or should we take this time, which is a window, to really make a difference to M? Whatever chances she has of recovery, the chances are highest now. And if I choose to go down the other route, I might be closing the door on any chances she has to recover. And so our decision was, we're not talking about this anymore. It is 100% Emma. It is 100% hope. Um, I think that day I bought a book on Amazon about brain injured children, and, and I started to learn. Because this journey, it's a lifetime of learning. What's the next step she's at? What's the next need? How do I fire up some new sense? What new therapies are coming out? What equipment do I need? Those things, nobody brings them to you. Most of the medical fraternity has already put Emma in a box of vegetative, no real hope. You know, she'll never go to school, not even for a day, that sort of thing. And therefore, because they've made that prognosis, they will not invest time into helping her come back. So they're not going to give me a pamphlet. They're not going to give me training. They're not going to research options for me. It's my job. And so everything we've um, dedicated ourselves to now is saying, you know what? I don't need to hear you and your niece, niece say. Um That's the purpose. The purpose was to say, heck no, I'll show you kind of thing. We'll show you that the statistics aren't true and you all better start believing there's more for the next child.
0: I can really feel your conviction in that just owning it up this is my daughter. She's not just going to be another statistic, and I'm not going to allow that, regardless of what the doctors or the professionals like are saying about her. And yeah. uh, that's one thing that I think that's very admirable um, with you. And of course, your your family that you have to to. This is a lifetime thing, like like you mentioned. So, how did you come to a point when you actually said, you know, there is that acceptance and not just a form of resignation? Like, oh, I have to live with this. But it's really about, I am living with this. My family is living with this. And we're going to give Emma the best that we can give her and give her something that would make it normal for her.
1: I can't, honestly, it, it would sound better if I said that that woke in the very, in, in the very first moments. It didn't. Um, there's, there's a lot of grief that happens when this event takes place in your life. Um, I came from a very rural background. My parents were both teachers. We had never traveled with our parents. I would see friends going all over the world with their parents, not mine, right? And so I became an engineer. My husband became a secondary school teacher. And we were making a good living. And my dreams were to give my children literally the world I was like, yes, when Emmy gets a little older, we're going to hop on a plane every few years and do the things that once upon a time were only dreams for me. But Emmy was eight months old and the dreams crashed, right? And in that space of 20 20 minutes when she flatlined, that was our savings gone. Uh, Everything. Um, And that certainly shakes you up. I've lost my girl. I've lost my plans for saving for an education at college for my son. I've lost this dream of taking them to see the world, which is an education in itself, a very different, shiny education, because it's one with cultures and and with seeing how people are so different and building that kind of diversity awareness that I really wanted in in my children. and it also was, although I didn't realize it at the time, it was the beginning of the dying out of relationships for us. Um, and that shook me. Sean is a Sean is a very silent person in his grief and in his in in all that has rocked him. He keeps it inside and he processes on his own. I found that that was eating me alive, and I needed to talk about it. And in the beginning, there were no people to talk about because my friends stopped coming around and calling, my neighbors stopped talking, um, my family, even closest family, stopped coming by. And once I sat in a train next to a close family member. We were going somewhere on a train and he was with a friend of his family. And he didn't know I was close enough to hear. And he was telling her how my daughter was brain injured and she could never amount to anything. And, um, you know, and this sub story and and, and and how he's so sorry for me and that sort of thing. But he had never told me those things. Oh, And that brought a lot of things clear to me that people would analyze us. We are the case study. People talk about us, but nobody remembers that we're human anymore to talk to us. And that felt very lonely. So, this nine years has been a lonely time. Um, But the flip side of isolation is also resilience. Mm. If I don't have others to lean on, then I need to find within myself that resilience. And although time prevented Sean and I from really spending time as a husband and wife would, and our relationship, even with Brian, my son, had to shift, a lot of our relationship became duty because 90% of our time was spent on them by necessity, right? And you have a child who can't swallow, who can't suck, who can't see or do anything. All of her senses are gone. 90% of your time has to go there to keep her going. And that means that Brian went from having us all the time, playing hopscotch outside and running and drawing and doing what he called messy craft. You can imagine the mess, right? Um, He went to managing himself. He went to becoming a parent to us and say, mommy, it's time to eat now, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. at age five. So it sure was an education for us. Um, But what to do in the moment is what you asked. And I do recognize now that maybe that sounds very weird, but we didn't have time, I think, to blame people and to be angry. We only had time to figure out, okay, so where do we put our foot now, take the next step. And that was it.
0: You mentioned about, you know, the isolation, the feelings of being abandoned. But of course, not just your friends, but also your family. And um, that must be really painful to go through having to like also also like overhear conversations about you right being talked about in your in your community when um when you somehow expect also a form of like sympathy or empathy from them or or compassion coming from yeah. them and being seen as this family like of being the other with all of this pain and um also the grief that you had to to take on And, you know, the challenges that I'm hearing from you is that with your, your son having to, to right now also parent you and grow up like faster than, you know, than supposed to, and being able to deal with relationships, your own relationship with your husband and how that it's not just going to be about. Your duty as parents, but also to to maintain and hold a loving relationship. And you mentioned this um, in your book. Um, what can you say about that? Like, how do like special needs parents like how do they maintain or sustain a loving relationship in their own household with having to care also for a special needs child at the same time? Special
1: needs children exist on a continuum. Uh, Some are really, really sick like M, can't do anything for themselves. And in fact, people are scared to care for them. Um, In in that sort of situation, me saying I'm going on a date night, let me get a babysitter is a difficult prospect. Um, And then you have children who Some people on the surface will never recognize their special needs, and that comes as a challenge in itself because they treat that child as if they're faking it. Um, The the unseen issues that a child might have are just as valid, right, as the seen ones that you might see in Emma's case, right? Um, And so we all come with all of these challenges. So there are parents on one end of the continuum who will be able to say, you know, let's give ourselves this gift. And this is a gift to me to refill. This is a gift to my relationship, to my spouse, because we keep getting stronger relationships together. And this is a gift to my family because as we fill up, we know how to care for our family better. We have more energy. And we also are setting a good example for those who can observe them. Um, And so I'd say that's one of the biggest ways to set aside some time, which is just for you and your spouse or you and your special other. And say, no matter what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time together. Um, A couple of years ago, two years ago, we finally got somebody who can help with them and she's a medical trained person because em has so many medical issues you don't want her to seize or, or choke or something so you get somebody who is medically capable of dealing with those things and who understands how to live safely and all of those things. because M is nine now so she's a big child and we still have to treat her like a baby so you you definitely need training there um, and so for that, with that kind of support, we decided, let's go on a date. <laughs> and it was one hour long. It was in our living room with a, with a plate in front of us. Um, and what did we do for the whole hour? We talked about M. <laughs> it was the first time that we had gotten a chance to actually meet about M. Mm. Because usually he cares for M and then he switches over to me. And so we passed. We haven't shared the same bed for nine years. One of us sleeps with them. Um, so that's, that's a difficulty in itself, right? The interesting thing is that Sean and I, up to not too long before Em did her surgery and had the mystique, Sean and I actually talked about getting divorced. Then M got hurt and talk never came up again.
0: Wow.
1: Because M has been our shared goal. She's a need. We stayed together for Bri. Now it's an even more powerful reason, Mm -hmm. you know? But certainly relationships should be built on more than that. And we have actually taking more stock of that because we want fuller lives. For the first eight years, we didn't get to the point mentally or emotionally where we could think about anything more than surviving. But in the past year, year and a half, we finally started saying, you know what, we're seeing some shifts in M. We're seeing some abilities start to come out. She's understanding when we say certain things to her. She's raising her hand when we ask her to. She's lifting her hand to say she wants another mouthful. So She may not have words, but she has the ability to communicate. She recognizes our voices. She knows how our stump feels, sounds, when we're coming toward her door. And her daddy is the love of her life. So when his stump is closed, she begins to kick and laugh. Because he's about to come into her room. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you see those things, your world lights up mm-hmm. because that's magic. Yeah. The smallest changes in Emma remind us that they're miracles and they don't have to come in any big form, you know because she's the miracle that she that she can lie there forever not be able to move herself and yet laugh with joy in any second while I'm in the next room crying at the state of my life. <laughs> I, I remember that happening and I was like, oh, woe is me. I've lost so much. My life is so hard. Not in those words, but that's the feeling, right? Um, how do I live this life for decades to come? And while I'm thinking all of this and saying, Poor you, Marsh, I hear Emma's laugh going through the house like music. And I'm like, Something is wrong here, Marsh. You're so self centered because you're thinking about yourself, but the person who is hurt is the one laughing in the next room. Oh. Lesson learned. And I've never forgotten that lesson.
0: I was going to ask you this in a much later time but then you you already uh, mentioned this the lessons that Emma has taught you your 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 beautiful daughter you said that sometimes you just feel caught up with everything that's happening the weight on your shoulders the, the everyday challenges that you have to face but then hearing some you know the, your your daughters laughing in the other room and suddenly you started to think that what am I doing and realizing like your daughter and the miracles you've seen every single day with her um, is present. So what other valuable lessons have you, have you learned from Emma?
1: I've learned a couple things. Um, a couple come to mind. anyway. I grew up being told by somebody, an adult close to me in many different ways, how ugly I was. And that, you know, I have skinny legs and that I should be ashamed of them and that I should wear long pants and hide these legs. My child can't move. And as I look at her legs and, you know, I see her learning to lift that leg and kick and how magical it is, I realize the blessings that I have. I can see and my child can't. I can speak and she can't, and the list goes on and on, and and yes, it could seem harsh to say, because she can't, I appreciate it more, but that's not it. It's that she doesn't complain about what she can't do. She grasps what she can, and she squeezes the juice out of every gift she has, and that's what I need to learn. I'm full of gifts. What is my purpose? She never questions what her what purpose is. She's stuck in her bed, but she's living her purpose to the max every minute. And that's why I call lighting the path Emma's book, because I think this is part of her legacy. And I only said part because she has more to do.
0: That's really beautiful. Um, I love the part that you said. You know, she never questions her purpose because she's living it. She's just living it. And here we are and we're like wondering every single day like what am i doing right what is my yeah. purpose in life but am i is living it and i think that's like a huge lesson not just for special needs parents to actually see this beauty and magic in their children but for for us for all of us to actually see the beauty of the little things the simple things in this life and that that brings me to one of the things that you mentioned in the book that one of the ways that you cope is really to function more in the present so can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that
1: yes um, so so the challenge for me has been i was at the book launch and I was holding up really well. I was rather proud of myself because to to revisit what we went through, what M went through, and to actually start seeing it, I thought that that would make me shaky, and I didn't want to come across as shaky at the book launch. Um, but I did speak about it, and I and I you know emotionally and everything. But I wasn't this pile of nerves. I wasn't crying. I was just talking. And then the lady who was interviewing me said. You know, I'm crying. How is it that you are not? And I said, well, you know, um, I'm just telling you this story. And I'm surprised too, but I'm telling you this story and, and I'm holding up pretty good. And then she started to really, I think, try to get me to connect to the emotion of it. So she said, you know, what went through your head when I mean, flatlined? And all of a sudden, my child was in front of me on the bed, and I was back there. And I remembered how I felt the dreams were dying, and so on. And all of a sudden, I started to cry right there in the book launch. And I remember that really shaking me up. The Francis asked me that question again because there was some purpose to this.
0: Yeah. So. It's like about functioning in the
1: present, right so right what, so what do you mean by that yeah so I remember that when she made me go back to the past, I felt stuck there for a while and I kept remembering in the eight years before I was starting to turn the corner, I would remember back to things I'd remember back to pain I had or to times when doctors failed to give us the proper support so that things got worse with them. That has happened time and time again with us. And you can become angry all over again, right? It's one incident that might have happened six years ago, but I could relive it right now. I could get my focus, my energy, my everything gets depleted because I relive that again. And then when it's all done, What have I achieved? I've done nothing. I haven't changed anything for her. I've actually put myself in a worse frame of mind and I've taken away my focus on what I should be focusing on, right? And so I've I've started to understand that reliving the past, especially when it's negative things that you're reliving the past for, those serve no purpose. Unless you are doing like a reflective study, then it has purpose, right? We can look back on an event and say, how did you respond? And how can you do better next time? But if you're just reliving it with no real purpose to grow, Mm -hmm. then my advice to you is don't do it. And in the same way, I look forward and I think about my future. And it's a scary thing when I don't control how I think. Because the future for every special needs parent, I know, is a scary thing. Because you think, when my child gets old enough, will they be able to have an independent life? Will they be able to make decisions for themselves? Will they be able to go to college, right? In my case, the answer is no for all of those things. And so my thinking was, when Sean and I die, I don't think I have anybody who's going to take M. And if she goes to her home and she can't speak and see, she's a prime candidate to be abused. And that is terrifying. And that's how I used to think. But that too, I have no control over in this moment. And so I've learned to say, Marsha, could you be more structured in your thinking and more, you know, do something with this moment that you're in that's actually going to set things up in a positive way because you're wasting your time otherwise. Um, And that has made a difference. So I just remind myself one thing at a time, one day at a time. Every day there are 50 things on your plate to do, but you can't do any more than one in this second. So which one takes priority? Put everything into it. Do it well so you don't have to come back and wonder about why you made a mistake or, you know, should I have done it differently? And then once that's done, okay, what's the next priority? You may not get to your 50, but the 10 that you do do, they are done so well, you don't have to come back. I think that takes the lesson is to be gentle with yourself. Mm -hmm. You are not a human.
0: Yeah, you're not superhumans. We said about just taking it one step at a time, not even like a day at a time, but just one step at a time. Because maybe for some, right, that's the only thing that they can afford to do at that moment. And so Mm -hmm. having to look back in the past and get, you know, carried away with the emotions, the grief, the sadness, it just comes back. The future and what it holds for you, yes, as you mentioned, can be really scary
1: the key to that was recognizing that I didn't have to compare myself to somebody Mm -hmm. else. I didn't have to compare myself to another special needs parent because some people look like they have it so much more together than you. Mm -hmm. Some people might have so much more financial capability than you. And if you start doing that comparison, you'll be like, I'm feeling my child or how in heaven's name, can I do this? Or even jealousy can come up, right? Like, why do they have it so easy, right? This life isn't about comparing your journey to mine. And, mm, and, and yeah. I think one condition is that we can't always manage that. But the more we can, the better our life becomes.
0: Yeah. And, and you brought up the subject of comparison, jealousy, and this brings a lot of stories about who you are as, as a person. And definitely it's like with having to care for a special needs child, of course, uh, a a huge chunk of your attention goes to Emma. I'm not surprised for these stories to just come up that the narratives that we tell ourselves, like what's my life going to be? What's going to happen to me? You know, things like that. And for you, you are, you are a, I feel a highly evolved being Mm. who actually really sees this from the top and has, I feel, maybe not all the time to, but a good grasp of what's going on and how you're going to handle it. But for some who are not yet there, right, it may be uh, more of a struggle that having to deal with it every, every day. And so what, Tips and practices that you do apply in your life that um, have helped you and that you can share with with others.
1: I acknowledge that I'm not highly evolved. <laughs> <laughs> I feel um, that you are. <laughs> you know, walk the path. We can look back hindsight being 2020. I can look back and, and learn so many lessons from looking back. I can look back and I can say, ah, I can see a time when you did it right, Marsh. So let's take that lesson and let's try applying it more because it worked that time. And I think that's how it's evolving for us. And that's part of being gentle with myself. I no longer expect myself to do it right every time. Um, my my best motto has become progress, not perfection. Because I am Miss I am the person who always had to get it right, do the most, shine the best, do the best work in class and work and everywhere. And now I realize, okay, so what you were doing though is hyper-extending yourself, wearing yourself out, and you were leaving very little of you to enjoy your life. And that has come home to really um, be my life lesson, I think, as the biggest challenge came up with them. That's the biggest challenge I've ever faced. And um, I think life was trying to teach me those lessons long before. I just wasn't learning them. And now with this one, it's, it's not about to shift anytime soon. And you really have to think, how do I not run out because this is for the long haul and that means that i have to manage i have to manage every resource that i have so that we can all keep going and we do that by also finding time for ourselves the one lesson in my life that i resisted the most was finding time for self care and that um That lesson is slowly being learned. Um, The first seven years with Em, I I, I still have a full-time job. Um, The first seven years, um, Sean would go to work. I shifted my work hours to evenings and nights. So I would be Emma's caregiver in the day. Sean would go to secondary school and teach. He would pull into our yard at 3 p.m. I would get out of the house at 3.15, dressed, jump in the car, and drive for an hour and a half to get to the university where I teach, teach till 9 p.m., come back home. He would be putting him to sleep. When he came out, we'd have dinner, and then I'd go inside and I'd start my research and publication for my job. In between putting kids back to bed, doing homework, and all those things. And so my research and publication work happened at 2 and 3 every morning. I would sleep till 6, and would be up at 6, and the cycle would start again. And so we've actually been living on about three hours sleep for nine years now. Not something that's recommended at all, but what else do you do? Because financially, we couldn't survive with Emma's specific needs on on one salary. And therefore, I and I was in a contract job, so I had to work extra time to get tenure. And so all of these magical crazy things were happening. And I was running myself down, and Sean was running himself down. And we were, of course, also trying to convince Bri that all was well. That's the the epitome of the opposite of self-care. Um, And so now that I'm starting a business on top of it, (laughs) where's the time coming from? I don't know. Um, I think it's coming from learning how to, one is that we have the nursing assistant. Mm -hmm. And that means that sometimes we get support while I wrote the book, that's what happened. Every Friday, I would take three hours and write a chapter. And that's how the book got written. Um, it's understanding your priorities and giving yourself the space to carve out just a little time to work on the highest priority. You can't do five things. Choose one and slowly create that in your life. And then you look back eight months later and you have a book. Or you look back eight months later and you've been serving a couple clients you
0: know or
1: you have a video series that's running whatever it is you have to tune into your intuition not logic what is your heart telling you and then trust trust that that's the thing you're supposed to do and carve out just half an hour just an hour to do Mm, that love 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 that
0: just want to like summarize this also a bit but what you mentioned on you know some of the things that you do and you apply in your life that have helped you and one of them is of course to find the time for yourself right self-care because you can only do Mm -hmm. so much um you don't want to drive yourself into like burnout or complete exhaustion that you don't have anything much to give so time for self-care and then second is get help and support because it's important to have that so um, I'm thinking like for some uh, they don't have a full family support so it's getting outside of outside support if you can't afford it but also being able to ask help when you need it I think that's also important because some people it's just no I don't want to ask for
1: help yeah I've known some haven't been able to afford help. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have family who will come in and look look after their child. I, I didn't have that. Um, but that was fine because they went to their church and there were church groups that built up mm-hmm. and came on rotation and so on. That also didn't happen for me. But thankfully, because of the work we've been doing, financially we pay and we, we can afford to get this help. And that's been a lifesaver for us. And M calls, we call her Auntie Mel. M calls Auntie Mel's name after Sean's name and then me. <laughs> and, okay. um, and people ask me, you know, so don't you feel bad? No. Why would I? If my child can show preference, if my child can build relationships, my child who was supposed to be in a vegetative state. I I don't know about you, but I can't feel any kind of negativity about that. Mm-hmm. I would shout that to anybody from any mountaintop that she's able to say auntie.
0: That's one of those miracles that you do have. And then you also mentioned about giving space, giving time for your own set of dreams. So It's not necessarily abandoning. What you also want for yourself. And you talked a little bit bit about this in your book. And I think you mentioned about keeping your dreams alive, not abandoning them while meeting the needs of your children. And you have something tangible, your book. So I mean, carving out three hours of your time each week or each week, day is yeah. it? Each week, right? Just week, and then later yeah. on, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a day. Just awesome. hours a week, and yeah. a few months later, you have a book in your hands. And isn't that amazing? I mean, for those, you know, for some people, we have all the time in the world, but still, we couldn't set up a time just for to set aside that time for a business for giving yeah. you know, your dreams alive, and you're able to do that. So. What now I the, the the question I want is to ask you is that what vision like do you hold for yourself and yeah. and for others?
1: Um Francis, there's just one thing I want to say about that time that we set aside. Oh yes. Don't, don't make it so precious though that if something comes up, I mean with special needs kids, things mm-hmm. always come up. My precious three hours. I didn't often have more than an hour. So what I would have to do is squeeze 15 minutes in one day, 15 in another, and kind of build up to the time I needed to get a chapter out, you know? So it was so much less about me having a formula for this amount of time. Um, It was just about I'm really dedicated to this output. And by hook or by crook, it's going to happen this week. Deadlines having somebody that you're accountable to, the publisher was my my person. I would be like, I'm going to send you this chapter this week. And it had to show up. Nothing like a deadline to keep you working, you know? Um, So if I had to hold something that I say, I see for other special needs parents and for myself, um, the... I think the center of this whole experience and also the center of this whole book is love. Um, And it sounds soppy. It sounds soppy, especially to an engineer and a logical person, which is the person that I I have to say was. Um, It's that, you know, by, by sharing your stories of hurt, and challenge and brokenness. By sharing so honestly, you you don't lose anything. A lot of people feel like we have to have this stiff upper lip and we have to come across as if we have it all together. And I have acknowledged that I played that game in the beginning, right? Always pretending to my son that I had everything right. What I didn't realize is that he could see through my pretense. And that some years on, he had a little breakdown and had to go into counseling. And we had to acknowledge that what he wanted was love. And while I loved the heck out of my son, he wanted my time. He wanted me to give experiences in, and interact with him as I always had up to when I was good. And I had to learn. Just like I was saying, give myself time for self-care. I also started scheduling time for him. And I talk about in the book, you know, the the five love languages, Gary Chapman's book. I use the five love languages extensively to see what is it that Sean needs? How does Sean show love to me? Because I may not perceive it as love. How do I need love? Because he may not give it that way. How does he need love? I give love in my language, and that means that it doesn't sound, it doesn't feel like love coming from me. So Sean gives love in this way, through service. He sweeps the house. I'm like, that's a chore. (laughs) Uh, That doesn't show me that I'm loved. I need a hug, you know? I don't need you to clown around while giving me a hug. I need genuine a hug. Um, And because we come from different backgrounds, we have learned that there are ways to show love and ways that we shouldn't show love. And they don't match. And in Brian's case, we might have been coming from duty and providing him with a meal or saying, come on, Brian, here's the schedule, get ready, let's do this. And that comes from a place of love, but he receives love in the form of service. And so every night, I've learned this from Sean, every day when I came home from work in one of my toughest jobs, Sean would meet me downstairs, he'd walk up the stairs with me, and there'd be a hot cup of tea waiting for me. And I remember that this is maybe 10 or 15 years later. I remember that as the most shining example of the fact that my husband loves me. A cup of tea that took him a minute to make. And now every night I make sure Brian a cup of tea. And when I stick my head in, he beams this smile because mommy's showing me that she's remembered me. Even in the middle of all she's doing, every night there's a minute for me. So it's time with him to go to a movie when we didn't have pandemic conditions to play a game with him. So I would, I would play some card game or risk or some kind of board game with him. I would dance around the house holding Emmy. And Emmy's laughing because she's feeling movement and she's usually in a bed. And he's laughing because mommy's a clown. And that. Is important because I am a serious person by nature. And when I clown around, I show my son that he doesn't have to pretend. When he wants to be one thing, he gets to be it. Those are the ways that I've learned to show love, and those are the ways that I've set myself free just to be me. And I think that's really what lies in the middle of this book. It's for every person reading this book, special needs, special needs ally, special needs parent or regular person. I think the message is the exact same. We all want to just belong. We want to be fulfilled. We want to find joy as we are and for who we are. So connection and love, starting with love of self and acceptance of self. And when we can love and accept ourselves, then we can take the mask off and let other people see exactly who we are. And I think that's when we resonate with others the most. People accept you when they can trust you. And you don't have to be perfect. And those who don't accept you when you take the mask off, it's a blessing when they turn around and leave. Beautiful. So you find the right. Way.
0: I, I I couldn't agree more about you know about love, about connection, about belongingness. I mean, regardless of your wherever you are in your life or the situation you're in, it's really being able to express it and receive it because sometimes it's hard for for us to receive love we feel like we're just givers yeah. and then eventually we have none to give also having the capacity to receive love belongingness and connection in our lives and and i've seen and i feel like um that's exactly how you're how you're doing it marsha with with your family and how, um, how much of, you know, joy that must be for, you know, your, your son to also be able to experience that, that regardless of the attention, that most of the attention that you give is for Emma, but you also give him that time. And so with this, I think um, we're wrapping up But before I do, I just wanted to ask if there is anything that, you know, that I haven't covered or haven't asked that you would want people to know. And if there is, what is that?
1: Um, I I really have leaned into this calling to support special needs parents. Um, And when I say special needs parents, I really do mean special needs parents. Lots and lots of resources have been provided elsewhere to help special needs children, but the carers also need succor. The parents, the guardians, it's it's hard for them to keep going. And that's why I've really felt the need to provide resources to, 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 to bear up those who care for special needs people. So um, there are a couple places that I'd like to offer to your to your listeners. I have um I have a website called MarshaNB.com And that website features a lot of uh interviews and resources that would support special needs parents. And um there's a bio link page on this site that's leading you to many other pages like my YouTube channel where I'm actually making videos with Em to share experiences that she's been through and the tips and tricks that we've learned that have made a difference to help her to enjoy her interventions more, to help with toothbrushing and that sort of thing. Because I know how much that made a difference in opening up her abilities and in opening up the enjoyment she had of what used to feel like work to her when we were doing therapy. And by trusting our intuition, we've really experimented a lot and shaped new approaches that she now thinks she's playing and she's practicing her therapy without knowing that it's work. That's a secret. Um, So every week i have just started this series where emmy's stories and emmy's learnings are, are going to be shared free to the public through that channel and um, and training programs free ones as well as paid ones would start to be coming out on the on the channel, on the website
0: wonderful i'm pretty sure that you know you you're going to help a lot Not just special needs parents, but also a lot of people who are going through like different kinds of some tragedies in life and difficult challenges and how to overcome them. And I'm pretty sure you are that an inspiration to many and um, you're doing a wonderful, wonderful job. I've been speaking with Dr. Marsha Natai Bakisun. She's the author of Lighting the Path leaning into a hopeful future as a special needs parent. Marsha, it has been a pleasure having you in the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Big Impact Women. You can read and download a full transcript at bigimpactwomen.com forward slash podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app if you feel moved and inspired, head to iTunes and leave us a review. I love hearing your feedback on how we can continue to grow and evolve the program. I believe when women come together, we can co-create humanity's new story and contribute our gifts to the world. Bigimpactwomen.com. Go ahead, make an impact.